that they are fully funded and that they are not going to have to worry about that. And uh, we're excited to hear what God is going to do and build in their lives. And we're going to be patient because it's a long time distance from them pictures of Desi to now. So let's give them time and God will work in their lives and bring forth that fruit. You should see Russ back in the day. Kim thought he was hot all along, but that's the only thing. Oh, Jesus, help us. Now we've got to get spiritual a little bit. Let me turn your attention to 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter number 17. I'm going to read you the whole chapter. I need the whole story, and so... In case you are not familiar with the story, let me walk you through it. Now, Elijah, who was from Tishba in Gilead, told King Ahab. Now, King Ahab is the king of the northern ten tribes of Israel, an ungodly man. He married a woman who believed in Baal and Ashtaroth and wreaked great wickedness upon the land of Israel. Elijah, he's a prophet. So Elijah tells the king, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, the God I serve... There will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. If you want to like prophets, good luck with that. They do not try to influence people. They just kind of tick them off. You imagine it. You're a king of a country, an agrarian country, and a prophet walks up and says, until I say the word, you don't get any moisture. Your ground's going to crack. Your crops are going to wither. Your animals are going to thirst. You're going to thirst. And it's at my word and not until my word that you get any relief. <laughs> you can imagine why Ahab didn't like him. Then the Lord said to Elijah, go to the east and hide by Kirith Brook, near where it enters the Jordan River. Drink from the brook and eat what the ravens bring you, for I have commanded them to bring you food. I want you to stop for just a moment and think about the faith that took. Last time I checked, ravens take food. They don't bring food. Anybody with me? I've never seen a bird fly over and drop me off a morsel. I've seen plenty of them come by and grab whatever I've dropped on the ground. Okay, it's kind of counter experience there. Go by the brook. Now, Elijah's got to know that that brook's going to dry up. Go to the brook, drink of the water, eat what the ravens bring you. So Elijah did as the Lord told him. They camped beside Kirith Brook, east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat each morning. Bread and meat. Bread and meat each morning and evening. And he drank from the brook. This kind of sounded like manna in the, in, in the wilderness. This kind of sounded just as goofy and unpredictable as manna in the, in, in, in the wilderness. But after a while, the brook dried up, for there was no rainfall anywhere in the land. Then the Lord said to Elijah, Go and live in the village of Zarephath near the city of Sidon. Now, those of you that don't know your geography, God's just told Elijah to leave the country. Go to Canada. Go to the village of Zarephath near the city of Sidon. I've instructed a widow there to feed you. Now, if you don't know socioeconomic 
Widows do not have a lot of money. What's God doing? Brook and ravens, now a widow? So he goes to Zarephath. He arrives at the gates of the village. He saw a widow gathering sticks, and he asked her, would you please bring me a little water in a cup? As she was going to get it, he called to her, bring me a bite of bread too. But she said, I swear by the Lord your God that I don't have a single piece of bread in the home. Now, can you imagine the, the head conversation between Elijah and the Lord? Hey, Lord, it was crazy enough drinking from the brook and taking bread and meat from ravens. Now you told me a widow's going to take care of me. And I'm reading from the story that he's identified this widow. In the spirit, he's identified that this is the widow. And now he's looking at him going, Lord, you got another widow? Because I'm not going to eat very well. Because she says there's no bread in her house. I didn't even ask for a whole loaf. I just asked for a little piece of bread. And she says, there's no bread in your, my house. I don't have a single piece. And I only have a handful of flour left in the jar and a little cooking oil in the bottom of the jug. I was just gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal, and then my son and I will die. She had a plan. It was a depressing plan. It was the best she could do. A handful of flour and a little bit of oil in the bottom of the jug. Enough to make that single piece, that little piece of bread that she and her son would eat together and then die. But Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. When you don't know what you're going to do, when you don't have a plan, when there is not the adequate provision, when you are facing what you're not sure what to do, the normal human response is to be afraid. Nobody wants to die. Nobody wants to go without. But Elijah looks at her and says, don't be afraid. But then this is where it really gets interesting. Don't be afraid. Go ahead and do just what you've said. But first, make mine. I know, I reversed a few words there. Make a little bread for me first. She's already told him that the amount of flour that she's got and the amount of oil that she's got is only going to make a little bit of bread. He's saying, don't be afraid. Go ahead and do what you said you're going to do. You're going to make some bread for you and your boy, and you're going to eat it. But first, you're going to make me bread. Now, I promise you that that doesn't add up. That's not a good plan. That does not economically work. That does not mathematically work. Because if she makes that little piece of bread with that little bit of flour and that little bit of oil and she gives it to that prophet and that prophet eats it, there will not be a meal for her and her son. There will be no flour. There is no oil. And see, we've read this story too many times and we've heard it too many times and we know the end of it. You've got to stop. You've got to pause. You've got to be that woman. You've got to be that prophet. Because can you imagine the doubt that Elijah has in his mind as he stands there under the anointing of God? But what if it doesn't pan out? And what if it doesn't happen? And what if God doesn't actually do what God has intimated to him that he will do? He will have eaten a widow's last meal. Boy, that feels good. 
He's just moved the time clock up on starvation. He's just moved it up on what's going to happen. It's one thing to be eaten off of somebody. But eat off of a woman who has nothing except a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil, and you're going to eat her last cake, you're going to eat her last piece of bread. It's only by faith that you're saying to her, do not be afraid. It's only by faith that you're saying to her, go ahead and do what you're going to do, but first make me my bread. Then use what's left. There's nothing left. See, we've read this story too many times. We're not listening to it. We're not recognizing it. Then use what's left. There's nothing left. I only got enough to make a little piece of bread to start with. You just asked for my little piece of bread. Use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There will always be flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and the crops grow Again. Please understand that this morning's sermon, and I'm not done, has to do, yes, with money, but it has to do with much more than money. As I sat and I listened to Sister Leela talk about a plan, and I am a planner, and yes, she is in process of becoming a planner, a hook and crook and much yelling and screaming. I don't ever hear it, but I just know it. It's probably in the quiet of her home, away from her husband and her daughter. But my name, I can feel my ears are being taken in vain. My, my name is being taken in vain. I know it without a shadow of a doubt. I won't ask for a witness. I just know it. I am a planner. My parents have joked with me since I was a young boy. Steve, do you have your burial plot? By the way, I do not. You do, but I don't. I know. That's the honesty piece there. Did you catch that? They've teased me about planning, but they're planners too. Both of them. Extreme planners. Here's a little problem. There are times that God allows you to plan. There are times that God uses your plan. But moments of faith, by definition, do not conform to a plan. They can't. Because you can't plan what you can't see. You can't plan for what you hope for. I've listened to Christian leaders. I've listened to secular leaders talk about that faith, and hope is not a plan. And yet the scripture tells us that without faith, you won't please God. He that cometh to God must have faith, must believe that he is. Must believe that he is even though you can't see him. Must have hope that he really is there even though you can't touch him. And you got to believe that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. We are going to have to believe him. I can tell you right now on the budget that I could use the $68,000 that we have given to missions. 
I could take you to line items and show you that we could use that $68,000. And God is not saying to me, good boy, and showing me how he's going to make it happen because he requires faith. Faith that he is and faith that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That he's going to show up when he's supposed to. That he's going to do what he promises to do. And he's going to do it in his way and according to his timing. And he's not going to do it according to our plan. I promise you, Elijah did not want to operate according to this plan, but he had a word from the Lord. Let me tell you something, Christian. When you get a word from the Lord, that trumps everything else. He'll never contradict his own word, the scriptures. But when he points you in a direction that makes no sense. See, we've gotten used to some other things that make no sense. If you're going to get ahead, you've got to manage your time. And the more that you serve Jesus, the more time you put in the kingdom. That doesn't make sense. How's that going to get you ahead? I can tell you stories of my father who's on his fast track. He's making it through corporate America. And then he gets into the church and he gets tired of being sent away on Sunday nights. So he looks at people and he says, stop booking my meetings where I got to miss Sunday nights. I'm not going. If you book them, I won't be there. That's a way to get fired, ladies and gentlemen. That's not a way to advance. That's a way for people to hold you back. That is not a way to advance. But God's plans don't work according to human plans. They never have and they never will. He's told us from the beginning, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. In fact, as high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how far apart the way you think and plan and the way I think and plan is. Nine is not greater than 10. I'm sorry, it isn't. Yet we believe that eight even, this congregation, many of you, you believe eight is greater than 10. Because between your tithes and your offerings, both to the local church and to missions, you're approaching that 20% comes out of your paycheck and goes into the work of God. That means you're living on eight out of 10. There's no way that makes sense. Regina will tell you stories of when she was in college and exam finals would be, and midterms would be, and almost without fail, she says every single year, her church would schedule a revival. Every night of the week, she's going to church. Two, three hours. Should be spent in study, right? Should be spent preparing for those exams. She made up her mind, I'm going to church. Some of you are very academically oriented. You want your children to get ahead. Let me tell you the best thing you can ever do to get your children ahead. I'm telling you right now, do not follow your plans. Follow the plans of the almighty God. But it will require faith. I have a good friend, a student of mine that's a good friend of Desi's that has just gotten into a place that there is no way he should have gotten into academically. We at Urshan Graduate School did not have the capacity to prepare him to get into this school. Not only did he get into this school, he got into this school with complete tuition remission. That's over $100,000 worth of tuition money that's provided for him. They can give up to two. They don't have to give any. They can give one or they can give at the most two to any incoming class of PhD students, they can give a $20,000 stipend 
David Johnson is a brilliant man. I have great respect for him, but we are not capable of preparing him. He has a $20,000 stipend per year on top of that tuition. That does not happen by human means. That happens when the Almighty has a word for you and says, walk this path, go down this direction, and I am with you. Walls don't fall because you walk around and shout. Come on, ladies and gentlemen. Bread don't fall from the sky because you're walking through the desert. Waters don't part because you stick a stick out over top of it. This God is screaming at us. I don't play by this world's rules. Now, you don't get to put words in his mouth. There are plenty of preachers that have tried to do that. You don't get to insert words into his mouth. But when the Lord has a word, it trumps everything else. Shuts everything else down. So Elijah looks at this widow and he says, the Lord has said, you take that last handful of flour out, you pour that oil into it and you, you form it into a cake and you lay it on that fire to bake it. The Lord has said, when you go back to the jar of flour, when you go back to the jug for oil, there'll be more there. That doesn't, that, that, that doesn't work. That's not how it works. You buy flour and you pour it into a jar. You buy oil and you pour it into a jug. You don't take everything out of the jug. You don't take everything out of the bottle and put it together and give it to the man of God or do whatever it is that God has instructed you to do with it and then go back to the same jar and find there's more flour and find there's more oil. Now here's the bad news. The problem is, is that what we want to do is we want to go back and find a full jar of flour. We want to go back and full of, find a full jug of oil. That's not what God said. He said, you're going to have a cake by cake by cake enough that you don't starve. In other words, I'm not going to relieve you of the need to believe me. I'm not going to relieve you of the need to have faith in me. I'm not going to relieve you of the need to actually trust me. My dear friend is scared to death right now. He gave his answer on Friday. He turned down another more cushy PhD program, and he's terrified right now. Please put David Johnson on your prayer list and pray for him. He's got four young children and a wife who's behind him, but he's terrified. All of the self-doubts, what if I fail? What if I don't get the grades? What if I can't do this? What if this was just me and my hubris and my pride and not really the voice of God? And these are all the doubts that every one of us face whenever God speaks to us because he speaks to us in a manner that still requires faith. He doesn't speak to us in a way that's undeniable. He speaks to us with a voice that is deniable. He speaks to us with a voice that allows others in our lives to express doubt because they haven't heard him. She hasn't heard the voice of God. In fact, I'd like to bicker with God. You didn't really prepare that widow because from what I'm reading there, she don't have a foggy idea what you're up to. The only thing I know is that God must have prepared the faith in her heart. Because when Elijah says to her, go and do this, go because the Lord has given this word, verse 15 says she did as Elijah said. She and Elijah and her family continued to eat for many days. There was always enough flour 
and olive oil left in the containers, just as the Lord had promised through Elijah. Now, if you'll give me a little license, I could, if I were this widow, here's how it would have gone. I'd have scooped out some flour. I'd have poured out the oil. The last drops would have come out. I'd have made that cake and I'd have laid it down. And then I'd have sat there. And while that bread's baking, I'd have sat there. And slowly but surely, my hand would reach over to that jug. And if I know God, there was some kind of delay. There was some kind of period where she, she had enough for that day. But she wanted to know, do I have enough for the next day? And so she tilts that thing up. Nope, dries a bone. She sticks her hand down in that jar and she feels around. Nope, there ain't no flour. But by the time she needed it again, Flowers there and oils there. See, God's not going to speak to you in a way that doesn't require faith, and he's not going to provide for you in a way that doesn't continue to require faith because without faith, you can't please him. You can't be a Christian without faith. You can't walk the path he has for you without faith. Every step you take when you lose something that requires faith, he's going to take you to another place that then again requires faith. Ladies and gentlemen, it does not require faith. When it comes time to pay my tithes, it does not require faith. I've been doing this for decades, and I know he's faithful. So now he pushes me to other places where I have to give faith. It don't require faith to pay my tithes. Some of you it does. Some of you haven't activated your faith because you ain't paid tithes yet. You're waiting for the time when you don't have to have faith. Dear brother and sister, please hear me. There's never a time you're not going to be required in anything with God, in any step you take, that you have to have faith. The first time you feel his spirit begin to touch your tongue and your lips, I'm telling you right now, it requires faith because you're sitting there thinking it's just me. I'm just copying people. I've been listening to too many tongue talkers all around me. I, I'm making it up. Oh, I can't even understand what is being said. Oh, it doesn't sound like brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so. And you're second guessing right and left. And God has you right where he wants you to be because it requires faith. I don't like faith. I know that we are saved by grace through faith. I don't like faith. I'm all down with the grace bit. But the faith bit, I'm not up on it. This faith bit is just not cool. Because it takes me out of the driver's seat. It means I don't have control over what's going on. It means I'm dependent upon God. It means I'm dependent upon the words of God's people. I'm dependent upon the testimonies of other people. And I don't like that. See, I want it scientifically documented. I want to be able to lock my plans down. I want to be able to show that I've done due diligence. I don't want to be at risk. And you cannot serve God in faith without constantly being at risk. I didn't expect you to run and shout. Because it's not exciting. It's not fun. Oh, we like the part that there was always enough flour and there was always enough oil. But see, we skip. We skip that phase where she tilts it up and there's no oil. We skip the phase where she sticks her hand down in there and there's no flour. But as day after day went by, she and the prophet, and I don't know, forgive me, but I just kind of think it went in that order. 
I think she pulled out enough flour and enough oil to make the cake for the prophet. And I just kind of think God put a little bit of a delay in there. Or she started doubting just a little bit. Was that really the last meal? And he got the last piece? And then, unexplainably, more flour, more oil. But it gets richer than that. Verse 17 says, sometime later, the woman's son became sick. I believe he was a young son because if he was older, he'd have been out working for his mother. So the implication, or at least the implied piece is, is that he was young. And he grew worse and worse, and finally he died. Then she said to Elijah, O man of God, what have you done to me? Have you come here to point out my sins and kill my son? See, we always go and we, we, we second guess the plan of God because we know we're not worthy of it. We know that we haven't done what we're supposed to do. We know that we're sinners. We know that we're falling short of the glory of God. We know that we have not done good. And so many times the way that we preach this message is that faith only works if you got it right with God. Ladies and gentlemen, can I tell you something? You can't be right with God without faith. You're not going to be right with God by what you do. You're going to be right with God by his grace, by his mercy that operates through faith. You won't get it together. And that goes against our nature too because we like to posture. We like to put our best foot forward. We like to make sure there's no dirt on our shoes. We like to make sure our pants are cut just right. We like to make sure that our tie is straight. We like to make sure our hair is where it's supposed to be. We like to put our best foot forward. We like to tell God, God, I know I need your salvation, but look at how good I'm doing. So let's recontextualize what it is. Let's, and and, and I'm, doing, I'm doing pretty good. But inside, we're terrified. Because we know all the stuff we've done wrong. We know all the stuff that we've fallen short. We know all the stuff we've even been disobedient. You've got to get a picture of the love of our Father. Those of you that are fathers, you got to get a picture of the love of our father because that love that you have for your child as a father or as a mother, I promise you it comes nowhere close to the unfailing love of our heavenly father. Where do you think you learn to love your child that way? Where do you think that you love them with a never-ending love? I'm not telling you that you are confirming anything your child does, but you never stop loving them. And I'm not telling you that God is confirming any actions that you're doing contrary to his word. But don't you ever let anyone ever accuse you or plant within you the idea that your heavenly father ever stops loving you. God demonstrated, commended his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, he died for us. Greater love hath no man than this, than a man laid down his life for his friends. Well, I'm only his friend if I do what he commands me to do. Please understand that he laid it down before you even had a chance to do what he told you to do. That's why Paul said, what can separate us from the love of God? And he gives you a laundry list of things that cannot separate you from the love of God. Why? Because God loves with a never-ending love. Are you off the hook? Do you have to be, not have to be obedient? No, you do. But stop hooking God's love to your performance. God's love is what's going to change your performance. God's love, when you believe him, is what's going to transform your life. 
But those fears and those doubts that we hear in the voice of this woman are our fears and doubts. What have you done to me? If you come here to point out my sins and kill my son. But Elijah replied, give me your son. He took the child's body from her arms, carried him up the stairs to the room where he was staying, laid the body on his bed. Then Elijah cried out to the Lord, oh, Lord, my God, why have you brought tragedy to this woman who has opened her home to me, causing her son to die? Boy, that would have made the widow feel good. The man of God who knows everything, the man of God who has it all together, he's walking into God and now he's in a faith place. He's like, what are you doing, God? I don't know what's up. I'm really glad that you all have such confidence in me, but you're not with me in those moments where I stand. I don't project the confidence, but I stand before an almighty God and go, God, what are you doing? Where are you at? What's happening here? None of us get to skip faith. The bigger the move of God, the more risk. The bigger the move of God, the more need. The bigger the miraculous that you need, the more you're going to have to have faith. She says, oh, Lord, why have you brought tragedy to this widow who's opened her home to me, causing her son to die? He stretches himself out over the child three times. You know what this tells me? This tells me he had enough faith to muster to get over that child the first time. But I promise you that just like the woman with her jug, in her jar, he got done and he looked at the child and the child was still dead. His gut drops. Fear enters his mind. What have I done to this woman? What have I done to her? He doesn't have anything else left to do, so he cries out and says, Oh, Lord, please let this, life, this child's life return to him. Three times he does it. The Lord heard Elijah's prayer. The life of the child returned and he revived. Then Elijah brought him down from the upper room, gave him to his mother and says, look, your son is alive. Then the woman told Elijah, now I know for sure that you are a man of God. You know what that tells me? She had faith when she wasn't sure. Some of you sitting out there, you're going, well, I'll sit and watch, preacher. You go ahead and cast that vision. You go ahead. I'm going to sit here and watch. I'll believe when it happens. That's okay. That's what the widow did. As long as you're obedient. Not to me, but to the word of the Lord. You can sit and watch. She says, now I know for sure you're a man of God. And now I know that the Lord truly speaks through you. You see... You cannot escape faith. You cannot escape believing the men and women of God and the Word of God. There's no way to do this walk any other way. It's impossible. It cannot be achieved. It's not it's just not how God works. The woman had a plan. It was a plan that took into account reality. 
Reality was she had just a little bit of flour and enough oil to put with it to make a piece of bread. When she finished, there was nothing else to do. I'm here this morning to speak to all of us and to say, it is that those extreme reaches, it is at that place where you have no answer and you have no plan. That's where the miraculous occurs. That's where God likes to show up. But look at the majesty of God's planning. Because not only does he know that there's a widow in Seraphath, who's down to her last little bit of flour and her last little bit of oil. But God in his wisdom knows, and we don't know from the story, that there is coming a point later in her life where that boy that she loves is going to die. He knows that things are getting desperate in Israel. And that Ahab's going to be searching for him, trying to find him. So he gets him out of Israel. Actually takes him toward Jezebel's home. Takes him to the place nobody would expect him to go. God took him to the crazy place. The place that made no sense in a plan. Head south, Elijah. Don't head north. Jezebel's home is north. Now, we'll take you to a little widow that nobody's going to pay any attention to. I'm going to provide for you, and I'm going to provide for her. I'm going to provide for her in the short term, and I'm going to provide for her in the long term. This is the God we serve. And all he needs for the plan to unfold, both short-term and long-term, is for us to give him everything. This is the problem. He wants everything. The closing verse that Sister Leela read to you, if you're going to be my disciple, you're going to have to give up everything. You're going to have to be willing to, by comparison, hate your father and your mother more than you love me. You're going to have to hate your children. You're going to have to hate your houses and your lands. You're going to have to hate everything. Everything gets put down on the chopping block. Everything matters less than I matter. This God that we serve is a good God. This God that we serve is a miracle-working God. But this God does not do miracles when we hold back. He does miracles when we give him everything. We give him our doubts. We give him our fears. We give him our sin. We give him our brokenness. God doesn't want you posturing. God doesn't want you acting fake. God doesn't want you acting 
acting like you're starting to get it together. God says, I'll take you right where you're at. I'll take you broken. I'll take you sinning. I'll take you all that's wrong with you. I'll take all of the junk of your father and your mother before you. I'll take all of the junk that you've added to it. I'll take all of your money. I'll take all of your lands. I'll take all of your intellect. You give me everything. And I have a plan for the short term. I have a plan for the midterm. And I have a plan for the long term. Every step of the way, I got a plan. But you will not be in the driver's seat. You don't get to set the terms. And you don't get to do it without faith. I'm not here. We're not here to be a congregation that's gathering people. Frankly, if that was our goal, you need to find a different pastor because I don't have the skill set to do that. I'm not being falsely modest. I'm being straightforward. I don't have the skill set to do that. We're here to be disciples. And that means everything goes on the line. When Jesus spoke some tough words to the disciples, those followers that he was teaching, he says, you're going to have to drink my blood and eat my body. And so many people got offended and they left him. And he turned to those who had stayed, the 12 and probably a few ladies. He says, are you going to leave me too? And old Peter, he was such a blunderer at times, but he spoke truth there. He said, Lord, where are we going to go? Where are we going to go? Because we left everything. We, we didn't hold anything in reserve, Lord. We didn't, we didn't have a rainy day fund on this one, Lord. We didn't, we didn't have, a, have a plan B, C, or D on this one, Lord. We, we, went, we went all in. You walked by Matthew's tax table and he walked away. Somebody else took that one real quick. My boats. I don't know who's got them now. Because I'm not there to scrape the barnacles off of them. And I'm not there to maintain the nets. I've been gone for years. The Sicarii, well, they don't want nothing to do with, with their member that came. Because they think he's gone soft and he can't go back. We, where are we going to go, Lord? Do you really think, New RQPC? Do you really think, Stephen James Beardsley? That you can do what God has called us to do without giving him everything. No plan B's. No safety nets. No holding on to things that make us feel better. No, that's not how it's going to work. Take the last bit of flour. Take the last bit of oil. Mix it together. Make a cake and give it to somebody else. And then sit there and wait on the God who said your flour will not run out. Your oil will not run out. You will eat until the rain comes back and the crops come back. Now, please understand, I am not preaching to you just about finances. I'm not just preaching to you about provision. I'm preaching to you about salvation. I'm preaching to you about lifestyle. 
I'm preaching to you about attitude. I'm telling you, you will look at holiness a whole different way when you get a hold of this message. He can ask you to put 15 hats on your head. And if that's what he asks you to do, you'll put 15 hats on your head. He don't, you don't care whether he asks you to dress this way or that way. You don't care if he says, don't go there or go there. You don't care who he asks you to marry. You don't care who he asks you to be with. You don't care anything. It's all on the line. He gets everything. That woman had nothing but a son, flour, and oil. And in the process of approximately three years or less, all of them were put in the hands of a God who, if he wasn't true to his word, would have cost her the flour, the oil, and the child. But instead, Regina, if you come, when you give him everything, somehow he gives it back to you. He said, anything you give up for my kingdom, anything. And he's not just talking about money. He talks about fathers and mothers. He talks about relationships. He talks about material possessions. He says, anything you give up for me, anything. He said, I'll return it to you in this life. That's the short term. That's the midterm. He said, I'm going to return it to you in this life times 100. And in the life to come, eternal life. This sermon came to me as I stood in my basement and I stared at some of the things that I have to stare at. I cried out to my wife and I said, I'm terrified. I'm afraid. She looked at me and she said, Stephen, how can you be afraid? Are you lying about your willingness to go into Boko Haram territory? I said, no. She said, are you afraid there? I said, no. I said, I'm not going to go unless he tells me to, but if he, I kind of want him to tell me to because I want to see the miraculous. I want to see a Muslim converted as they try to run me through, and it don't work. It's a little hard to keep arguing about which God is the true God when you've pulled the trigger and shot a bullet and it didn't kill somebody. I'd like to be there. And I genuinely am not afraid. So my dear wife looks at me and says, then how can you be afraid of this? Do you know why? Because on the face of it, going into Boko Haram territory is so clearly out of my control. But this... This that I face, the things that are in front of me, that, that little bit of flour and that little bit of oil, they're things I can control. And as surely as he sent a man of God into her life, both to preserve her life, but also to give her her son back, a threat she didn't even know was coming. A threat that if she had made her decision on the short term would have cost her so much greater. She had to choose. 
Do I believe him? You see, James is right when he said, don't tell me you believe. You got to show me. And I'm not saying you need to show me or that I need to show you, but I hear the voice of God looking at us and saying, okay, Newark, you say you believe. You have preached for decades that God does not abandon those who give to missions. You've preached for decades to people who said, that you've said to them, you've got to lay down your life. For he who tries to save his life will lose it. But he who loses his life, for my sake in the gospels, the same shall save it. You've preached, seek my kingdom first, and I'll add everything else that you need. You've preached it. Okay. Do you believe it? Because it's one thing to say it. When you still have your pathetic little jar of flour and your little jug of oil. And it's another thing to say it when you pour out the last bit of that oil and you pour out the last bit of that flour. Some of you, this is what's standing between you and receiving the baptism of the Holy Ghost. You got to give him everything. It's not a performance. It's a faith walk. Some of you, this is what's standing between you and what you want to do. You've even said to me, Pastor, I want to be obedient to the word of God. I want to get involved in the church. I want, but I got to, I got to do this and I got to do that. And I stand here very transparently before you and say, this is what stands between me and what God has called me to do in leading you. No safety nets. He wants everything. Some of you will know what I'm talking about, but I... I literally have a ritual where I go check the jug. I go check the, I go check the jar. And some days I rejoice, and some days I gulp. And at every point, I keep hearing God saying, <laughs> Buddy, everything. No safety nets. And the horrible thing is, is that once you fall in, G, fall in love with Jesus, that's a rock and a hard place. Because I have to deny everything he is in order to not be obedient. He wants everything. I'm done. This altar's open.